Hey everyone, welcome to Techonomics this week. I'm Jake, an analyst, writer, and engineer currently working in fintech. And I'm Arun, an investor, educator, and product leader currently working in the autonomous space. And today we welcome Nate Parati, a principal at Newstack Ventures, who was previously a founder at Monarch. Nate, welcome. Good to be here. Thanks for having me, guys. So we always ask people once they first come on, how did you get to where you are now? What was your career path? Yeah, I'll, I'll try and make it as succinct as I can. So I'm from a small town in Iowa, Dubuque, about 60,000. So grew up not having exposure to what was going on in the coast as far as tech is concerned. And I actually went to engineering school thinking I was going to be building engines. That's how naive I was. And that's where I was introduced <laughs> to computer programming. And when I was introduced to programming, I fell in love with it. I, I got very lucky that I chose engineering and found something that I, I genuinely enjoyed doing. And at the same time, I was realizing how you could apply what we were learning in class to building products and working on different problems outside of class. So that was my first delve into entrepreneurship. And I started competing in different entrepreneurial competitions. And eventually that led to the founding of robotics company Monarch. And we can chat more about that, but that was my foray into tech and it exposed me to venture capital through the time of building the company over the course of three and a half years. It was exposed to VCs. I had to raise money, go from a solo founder to building out the founding team, finding product market fit, and eventually exiting. Upon exiting, I feel as if it's a very classic dilemma to wonder, do I want to go start another one or do I want to join the other side of the table? And it was around that time that I came across Newstack Ventures, where I currently work. And I noticed they were one of the few firms that invested in founders that fit my profile, right? Not your Harvard educated that worked at Google for three, four years or whatever. And now they're spinning out, building some cool tech, trying to find a problem to solve. We seek founders that are very mission driven and are in different parts of the country and are just building businesses with the right fundamentals. So that attracted me to the VC side and I didn't know how long I would stay, but I've been here about two and a half years. I'm very glad I, I ultimately wandered over to the venture capital side. It's funny that you brought up the like typical background that VCs tend to pull from and then and then your background. And it's funny because I always say that entrepreneurship's like this great equalizer. It doesn't really matter where you went. Once you have to start once you have to start a company, everything goes out the window. Like, it does not really matter where you went to school. It doesn't matter. You know, some to some extent, your work experience matters, but not necessarily where you worked, right? And it's it's funny, and I'm I'm surprised that to hear somebody still say that. You know, I thought that they would have changed and they'd be actively going after ex founders and stuff like that, but it doesn't seem like it's necessarily the case. What you're saying? Yeah i I feel as if a, a lot of capital is allocated to those with pedigree from the right backgrounds because it's a filter, right? It's the same reason why investors look at YC businesses. It's a filter and they pay a premium for it. No one's going to look stupid investing in two Harvard guys that are going to tackle a large business that work in Google, even if they're pre-revenue, right? Yeah. So oftentimes I, I think it it's easier to invest on the optics versus it's more challenging to assess the right fundamentals independent of the background. 
for sure. And you know, so then you, this kind of brings you to to Newstack. What was the specific appeal of Newstack? I'm guessing you had options. I wanted to stay in the Midwest, and there's a, a few things that were appealing to Newstack. One is our general partner Nick. Like he is someone that I have a lot of respect for. I think he's very tenacious, has a big vision for what we want the firm to become, which is the best firm in between the coasts. I like people that have big, audacious goals. I gravitate towards it, and I love working on big, hairy problems. I think building a a world-class venture firm is a, a challenge, just as building a unicorn is a challenge, right? And we operate very much like a startup. So that mentality is something I very much gravitated towards. The second part, which I alluded to earlier, was the thesis itself. So the types of businesses that we invest in, the ability to get to conviction, even when a business doesn't have revenue, I think it's a special skill set. And as I talked about, I think a lot of investors look at the optics to help them make those decisions versus assessing the right fundamentals about the founder and the opportunity. So that is a special skill set that I th thought at the time Newstack had. and. Um, I, I believe we do. I, I think that thinking from the outside looking in and assessing it at the time has proven true. And Newstack's a new fund, if I recall correctly. Was there any appeal to going to to specifically a new fund? There, there definitely is a new fund. I, if we're being very honest, I think. Life and careers are a lot about being in the right place at the right time. Venture is no different, right? You can get in funds that their partnership is locked up. There's not a lot of room to grow. They will tell you from the outset, hey, you're going to be a senior associate or you're going to be a VP for a couple of years. And, you know, that's probably it. This is not a partner track role. Not all firms have partner track roles. And if you're in venture, you want to be able to build your own conviction, sit on your own boards, be a partner one day, right? Have true ownership. So being at a smaller fund with a partnership that isn't locked up, it affords you that opportunity. And when you marry that with the big vision of trying to grow into not just a, a strong pre-seed seed fund, but again, one of the best between the coast, it, it makes for an easy decision. And that fits into the whole operates like a startup when you're from a new fund, you have to, I'm guessing, versus you don't have a lot of inertia and reasons to keep doing things a certain way. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think going from Monarch into VC, I, I believe one of the reasons why people bounce back and forth is if you're an operator, you have that builder mindset and then you jump over to the VC side and you're not able to exercise that builder mindset. You know, you're able to be intellectually stimulated, but it doesn't crave the, you know, it doesn't quench the thirst to build. Right. But if you're at a place that is both intellectually stimulating and is building something, it's like both, both halves are met. And that is definitely an appeal about being at a smaller fund and specifically new stack. Very cool. And in terms of sectors right now and investing, is there, are there any sectors that are really exciting to you as a VC? Yeah, there's a few. It feels like many have moved on to web three when many industries 
that provide the backbone for the economy aren't even on web two yet all the way, right? It, so many, it, it, so many industries still operate using paper or Excel sheets and have lagged behind the technology adoption curve. And a lot of the capital allocation is already on the next wave. What I'm really excited about is that those laggards, you know, those spaces that have lagged behind and specifically there, I, I don't have any great specific examples. I can give you categories though, right? Sure. Like I think what's going on in manufacturing and supply chain is very interesting. There are areas of healthcare and procurement that are very interesting. Uh, robotics, which I think overlaps with manufacturing is very interesting. And there are some areas within e-commerce. The, the, the thing about being a pre-seed seed investor is you have to be very open-minded. It's hard to be entirely thesis-driven where you can say, here's where I think the opportunities lie. I'm going to go out and I'm going to find founders that are executing against them because it's challenging to get in front of the founders that are building exactly the thing that maps your thesis. And ultimately, I can spend a few weeks thinking out about a space and I feel like I might know it, but then I meet someone like you who's way deeper in your space than I could ever be. And your vision might differ than my thesis. And ultimately it's more about identifying these big buckets where opportunities lie and then finding founders like yourself who have the expertise and you, you can kind of lay out the vision in front of me and what that looks like. And my diligence process is more validating what you're saying is true. So Web3 and crypto are new. They don't have a lot of fundamentals. They're like literally, the fundamentals get questioned and they get knocked down every single day. But what Newstack is looking to do is, is you know, look at the, the fundamentals of businesses, look at the fundamentals of founders and like that, that core skill set that you feel like is unique to Newstack playing into what sectors they're, they're excited about and that you're excited about. Is that a, a correct characterization? Yeah, I, I think a lot of it starts with the, the proper identification of a problem. If I'm sourcing companies, I can look at the founder's LinkedIn profile, look at the business they're starting, and right there I can tell with reasonable certainty if it's going to be a good call. For example, if there's a founder that worked at Unilever as a product manager for three or four years and is leaving to go start a packaging marketplace, Chances are she learned something at Unilever that has informed her to go start this business within packaging, right? It's like those are apples to apples. It's sussing out already the fact that this founder's identified a real problem, has real world experience within her target customer, and is going out and solving a problem in a very antiquated but large space. So you contrast that with what you're talking about with Web3 and crypto, which I feel as if there's a lot of people that are just trying to chase dollars and create a, a quick flip and a quick win versus really starting on first principles and solving a, a true problem that they've identified. So we definitely seek those those mission-driven founders in those spaces. You know, you, you talk about the quick flip and it's funny, I was talking to somebody probably earlier this week and we were wondering when when did the quick flip mentality come into tech i don't know if it was like super maybe in the two maybe in 2000 it was at the, the dot-com boom but seemingly we had you know two decades of of like people who wanted to build and wanted to be in the game longer 
And now it seems like that has shifted dramatically. And do you think that it shifted or do you think that we just, we just see it more now? Just curious of your thoughts there. This might be a hot take, but we, we save that for later. Usually on economics. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I think here's the way I, I feel as if we've gotten to where we're at today. And I, I think the product has been incrementalism in tech, but this is what I've noticed. Most investors like to invest in highly scalable businesses because they can get returns quickly, they're high margin, and that tends to skew towards software. So what you have is you have a lot of founders that are very smart and they go where the money goes, right? So if investors are funding software businesses, that are highly scalable, that's where they go to start businesses. Then Web3 and crypto came along. And I've I've seen this in my own sourcing. Like it went from, I don't know, one in a hundred crypto Web3 startups to it seemed like one in five. So when there's dollars being deployed within a particular area, that's where founders go. And the reason I bring that up is because I think as investors, we can incentivize the wrong term, the wrong type of innovation. Mm. If wherever we're deploying dollars, that's where a lot of the skill set within tech goes to solve those problems versus, hey, we're willing to fund very challenging problems that they might be hardware or they might not have a recurring revenue component or they might take years to commercialize. Because those opportunities are more risky, don't receive as much funding, I feel like we have less founders that go and start those types of businesses. So I think it's been an evolution ultimately around the quick flip because that's where dollars have been deployed. It seems as if as long as if I'm venture fundable, there's a 50% chance my business gets acquired and that's still a decent outcome for most founders. It's enough to keep them financially free. So I don't think it's one thing. I think it has been an evolution of where dollars have been deployed. And it's also more prominent just because the overall number of startups that have been founded and the attention that the venture ecosystem and tech ecosystem has received has increased dramatically, especially over the past five to 10 years. How do you resolve the fact that, you know, Web2 businesses and and those software startups and those types of founders and those companies tend to get flipped and, and acquired relatively at a, at a maybe more repetitive pace so you understand, hey, if I start this business, this SaaS business, I look at the landscape and I say, hey, this like large player is going to acquire me. It's an exit strategy. But in mm-hmm. Web3 and crypto, it's, it's not tried and true, yet all the dollars are following that. So like, how do you resolve those two different, more risk averse now, and then more risk prone with Web3 and crypto moving forward? I personally don't invest in Web3 or crypto. I'm still wrapping my mind around the space, I would say. When it comes to Web2, I think we all are. I'm sure we'll get to it in a bit, but yeah, seemingly there's a different definition of Web3 of pretty much anyone you ask. As it pertains to Web2, though, the way it manifests in our process is sussing out how big do founders want to take it? Because in order for the model to work, you need founders that are going to drive outsized returns and outsized returns come from the founders that aren't exiting for 50 million, they're exiting for hundreds of millions, or hopefully they're able to take it to a billion. But that also connects to the element that we were talking about in the beginning of the episode, which is being mission driven. So do they have a true authentic connection to the problem that they're solving? Do they have expertise around it? Those founders tend to be more obsessed with solving the problem than they are the outcome. But it's an important thing for us as investors to 
suss out. And frankly, it's more fun to be on the journey with the founders that, you know, they have the big vision and they're hell bent on sticking with it and solving the problem versus thinking about what the outcome is. But it's very apparent during the process in speaking with founders. And so that kind of, you know, we've touched on it right now, but I kind of wanted to dive in. You know, we have this year, which is 2022. And it seems like we've, we had a couple of years. We had a year called 2020, where, where a lot of things happened. We had a year called 2021, which was the continuation of a lot of things happening. Oh, this year called 2022, which seems to be the world snapping back. It's almost like this rubber band that's like going back to it. So it's been stretched too far and it's, you know, snapping back on us. And, you know, we don't get that many VCs on the show. And uh, so, Nate, why is the world screwed? <laughs> I feel as if I'm more optimistic than than that, but we we definitely saw more dollars being allocated at a faster rate at higher valuations than ever before. What the ramifications are going to be of that and the ultimate consequences, I don't know, right? I, I don't know. I do believe founders that are building enduring businesses are are still out there and for funds that are focused on finding them are going to be okay, but there are a lot of funds and we're already seeing it that are suffering huge losses or they're seeing write downs. I don't know how that, how that's all going to turn out. Right. I mean, this is the big debate going on right now. And I am hopeful that we correct it moving forward versus letting tech exuberance get away from us. And I'm optimistic that we'll be able to to not be screwed. But yeah, I, I don't have a good answer for you. Being in the thick of it though, it, it was it was quite crazy. You know, you take a call with a founder and mm. they might have a deck and an idea and they're raising at 50 million posts or a hundred million posts. And it's mind blowing because you're like, oh, there's no way that'll get done. And then come a month later, you see so-and-so firm did this deal and it, it's pretty close to what they what they were asking for. Yeah, I, I don't know. I can't explain. There's a question I always ask, which is how did we get so far away from reason? And I just want to say it was interest rates, but I don't think it was just interest rates. I think it was a lot more than that. And I guess we'll see. I'm sure there's gonna be a lot of postmortems on this with time, but I think that some of it is just was just extreme techno optimism and and then after that i really can't explain it either yeah i i think we're generally over optimistic as as human beings right so covid happens and so many consumers are forced to use certain types of tech whether it's delivery services or it's zoom businesses are forced to adopt new technologies which prompts extremely fast growth rates within these businesses and money flows into them. And then what happens is you have companies that are starting businesses that are also impacted by COVID, some positively, dollars flow in, more funds are getting formed, and competition for deals goes up, prices go up. And we're very short-sighted, we're overly optimistic, and that flywheel repeats itself until the music stops. I also think that there are just some products which are cool, you know, just by general, like it's not even techno optimism in terms of like growth of these like things. Right. But I'm looking at like metaverse or, Hey, we can like virtually walk around this like landscape, you know, in a virtual office. And like that, that's a cool thing. And everyone's yeah, like, that sounds great. Let's see if that, that has legs. It's just like this new idea. But in reality, I haven't used that. I don't know if you guys have used a, a similar like platform or product, but you know, the, that idea of like sustainable 
product need from consumer and that demand does play into the techno-optimism point. But I do think that there's a level of public investment as well as private investment that I'm trying to also resolve in that, which is from a private investment standpoint of like venture funds going into these like new novel ideas, fine. But like for like the Zooms of the world and, you know, delivery services and things like that, that are actually rooted in some business model. Like, how do you resolve those two differences? Because I do think it's crazy for someone to be raising with no product at 5 million po- or 50 million post rather versus someone throwing extra money into Zoom from like a consumer perspective. Like those two things are very different in terms of what drives those economics, right? And like where those funds are coming from. So like, how do you think about that specific to private investment versus the public investment? On the private side, you have a, a, it's much easier to raise a fund, especially the smaller fund. So you have a, a lot of people all, allocating capital that are probably not good at allocating capital. That's that's the reality of it. So you have more and more startups getting funded at pre-seed and seed that probably shouldn't yeah, be smaller receiving. Checks. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's just easier to put together a $15 million fund than it is a hedge fund that is going to be deploying into public equities. So from the private market side, I think that's true up until a point. Obviously, the, the growth stages and beyond, you don't have jokers that are able to put together a billion dollar fund. So I, I wonder to myself about the same thing. How had prices gotten so far away from us. Mm-hmm. I think there's a there's an element of there's capital to deploy and they're competing. And as as we've seen new models within the private markets, like from these crossover funds, Co2, Tiger come in and jack up prices at Series B and beyond, that mm-hmm. model drove up prices and you have Series B and growth investors that need to compete as well, and they're deploying dollars. I don't have the best explanation for it. It makes sense at the early stage how it got away from us, but from the growth market, yeah. the growth markets and the publics, it's it's surprising, right? I I think optimism only can explain so much of it. I don't know. It'd be it'd be a fascinating interview for you guys to actually have on a growth investor from. If you could ever get someone from Tiger, if anyone or Co2 knows and, anybody? Yeah, yeah, right. There, I think there's a reason why they're so <laughs> why they're so quiet in the media and they don't do interviews. They know what types of questions they'd be getting. <laughs> yeah, what is your guys' take on it? You know, I, I'd be curious to hear how you guys think about it. I, I guess you know, I think frequently that I think about 2000, and then I think about you know, and there there was a massive bubble, and I think that we had a lot of things going on in the world that pumped this thing up. I think some of it was low interest rates and just a lot of money being printed. I think some of it was, you know, there's pressure from LPs to deploy cash when, you know, they're getting eaten alive by their money sitting in a bank account. And I think there's some of that. And I think that some of it was also just, you know, the, the, the public markets had moved away from fundamentals. If you had looked at any indicator in, in late 2021, I know they have, I think it's the Buffett indicator, which is, you know, the, the market value versus like the GDP, like all these things were basically like tipping and saying that we were, we were running, we were running over. And I think when you see that in the public markets, it makes behaviors in the private market acceptable. If you're, if you're willing to pay you know, a hundred X earnings on a public company, I think that you, you know, you start thinking, looking at private companies, you start looking at early stage and you start thinking what's wrong with paying a thousand 
X or 2000 X or whatever, you know, if I think that this is what, it, you know, that company could be on the public market one day. And I think that there was a bit of a chain reaction, but you know, I'm not an expert on it. That those are just, those are my hot takes. But what about the democratization of like venture capital now in, in a way that, you know, is going through AngelList and these other platforms and like this way to raise funds that did not previously exist as far as I understand. I don't know what venture capital looked like in the 2000, early, early, you know, 2000s or, or prior. But like right now I can literally just like jump on AngelList, sign up to be an LP somewhere and then just hit the button and like invest a bunch of money into some some deal that I may or may not have run through due diligence on my own. How does that play into this conversation as we think about like the balance between the two? Because if you're looking at the public markets going, hey, this is good. More people are investing in public markets. Maybe some of them are getting returns. They're looking at GameStop. They're like, wow, I could make more money if I like shove this into, into other areas as well. And hey, private, you know, why don't I put something into venture? I also think that there's a, a semblance of that playing into this as well, which is mm -hmm. just this increased capital allocation increased number of people who can't allocate that capital correctly, and then also an increased demand for good deals and a lack of supply of good deals. And so like you have all of these playing in motion towards this private world that we live in following the public markets as a result. Yeah, they, they kind of multiply together. And a product of it is there will be some startups that we chat with that have raise a friends and family round of 2 million bucks, right? At a 10 to a 20 post when they have nothing. That was un unheard of, you know, 10 years ago, right? So right. the appetite for the early stage investments and, you know, hearing the stories of the angel investor who invested in Airbnb, Uber, whatever company, you know, pick, pick a company that makes its waves. And to your point, then they're hopping on AngelList or they're hopping on Stonks and deploying yeah. capital. And yeah, it's interesting. I, I was I was actually chatting with Ali Moyes at, at Stonks the other day. And that one of their challenges that they're having is driving recurring behavior for investors and getting them to invest across a portfolio, right? Like index versus versus just picking a specific startup. Because picking a specific startup unless you're doing this all day, every day, even, even for someone like myself, I'm going to be wrong a lot more than I'm going to be right. But for someone who's passively investing in startups, it's, they're probably going to miss even more frequently. So if you are that passive investor who's dipping into this asset class, some might get very lucky, but the majority that are just picking one here and there are bound not to do well unless they're properly diversifying, which is one of the advantages of going with a fund. One thing also that I, I question is where, where are these funds coming from? Just in general, like where's this capital coming from, from each of the individuals who's like investing in, in the private markets? One, one thing that brought down like in 2008, for instance, it's we had leveraged mortgages. I mean, yeah, you do have like margin investing on, on Robinhood and so on. I think generally, I don't think that that's the same thing. I think people are actually like deploying straight cash from, from what I understand. That also is a weird market dynamic that I'm just unsure of what's going to play out. So these companies fold. Okay, that that happens. That money goes away. It's spent and like basically reallocated somewhere else in the market to like, you know, if you're, if you're starting a software startup, maybe it's like some SaaS company that you're using. Yeah. You're deploying AWS, gobbles it up, whatever. And so like that changes where that money goes. Generally, there's not like a fallout for that individual unless they're leveraged. And so like how, 
I don't know how that's going to play out either. Does it create a, a, a stricter divide between high net worth individuals versus folks who aren't? Like, I don't know. But I also think that's an interesting thought experiment for us to play. Yeah, that is. It, it's almost analogous to how some say most venture dollars end up in the hands of Facebook or right. one of the other, yeah, one of the other large platforms just due to they're the, the few channels to acquire customers, right? If you're a consumer startup, it is an interesting thought experience. I also think about how many venture companies are dependent on other venture companies. And what I mean by that is mm -hmm. you have a number of SaaS businesses and who their customers are, are other venture funded SaaS, SaaS businesses. <laughs> and so it would be, <laughs> it'd be interesting to like, take a look through, okay, how much, how many of your customers are like series B or below, right? Or series C mm -hmm. and below, because it's not a, it's not a, a done deal just because you have revenue, that revenue is, is shaky. So if, if many of these customers start to go away, it makes me wonder what are some of the revenue gaps going to be in some of these SaaS businesses. And it's such a large web that, and it's all private data. So it'd be very, very challenging to actually get to the bottom of that question. But I, I just see so many of these businesses that feel so incestual, right? They're all operating in the yeah. same market, buying sales tools, and they're buying a, a PM tool, engineering tools, and it's they're all selling to one another in it. That is the element that somewhat feels like a bubble. And that that's also a reason why it's part of our thesis is going to invest in some of these older antiquated spaces because their customers are these businesses that have been around for decades at times, right? Or they're the, these large mm -hmm. established enterprises versus, versus these house of cards who maybe a majority of their customers are YC, <laughs> YC mm -hmm. startups, right? It's a, it's a different makeup of revenue. You're going to find where the value sits very quickly in the SaaS world because of that reason. It's very easy to just buy a tool off the shelf and just use it for a little while, unless it's super core to your business. I'm thinking Slack has, has done a very good job at infiltrating many mm -hmm. startups and, and so on. They run their businesses around it. But then I look at other SaaS products as well, where you're like, yeah, you could probably deal without that. And then again, to your point around the house of cards falling as a result. Yeah. Yeah. It, it goes to the whole painkiller versus vitamin, right? Yeah. And today, you can create you can create tools and services faster than ever and deploy them and find customers get to 500k million dollars of revenue and with so much capital being out there you might be able to get funded and then you're able to get to the, you know the next stage and it just it just keeps going versus are we f taking a step back and asking ourselves are we creating true economic value and that is I, I think what I was alluding to earlier, maybe I didn't do a good job of describing it, but just incrementalism in tech. And I would prefer to see more startups tackling large, hairy problems because we don't have a shortage of problems in this world right now. There's no doubt about that. You know, it's it's funny, Nate, we were talking on the phone, I don't know, maybe about a month ago. And when you agreed to come on, and talking about like creating economic value seemed to be this one thing that you and I really, really agree on. And that's really the role of, of a startup ultimately is you have to deliver long lasting economic value. And I think even, you know, we talked about reasons why we're in the current landscape. I think some of that went out the window too. I think it was a question of, you know, I, I frequently tell my, my, uh, the people that work at model, the people that work at model prime, I frequently tell them. 
you know, we have to be really, really good at three things. And those three things are if we run a company we're proud of, we have to build a product that meets our customer needs and is the best in class. And we have to be a really great business on top of it. And I feel like that third one just slipped away. You didn't have, you didn't need the third one anymore to raise money. You didn't, you didn't even need like the semblance of it anymore. And I think that that's, you know, pro- probably if I had to go back and revisit the answer I gave to that question, it's probably the other one I probably would tack on there too. Mm-hmm. This is part of the area that I'm lost when it comes to Web3 is I, I take a look at a number of Web3 startups and I was reading Packy McCormick's blog the other day. It was the most popular article. I believe it's like infinite revenue, infinite possibilities. And it's about some startup out of Southeast Asia that allows people to make money from playing a game. And I understand that it, it can be creating wealth for the end user, but at the end of the day, they're just sitting in front of a computer and like trading NFTs. And I started to think about the productivity line, right? Like productivity on the X, Y axis has gone up, up and to the right over time. And I started to ask myself, is that application of technology accretive to that line of productivity? And I'm not all the way wrapped I haven't wrapped my head around that the answer to that question yet, but I I do believe a lot of technology is just it it it's good at making money at times, but it's not necessarily driving true economic value and true value creation, right? I think there's a difference is the point here between making money and value creation. I don't think they're necessarily one and the same. Yeah, in some cases you have companies that are almost solely just the transfer of wealth from venture capitalists to that company. That's not value creation. That's just wealth transference, basically. And a friend of mine actually calls it Silicon Valley welfare. You know, basically you just have these these businesses, they have no hope of making money, but but there are investors that believe in the founders, believe in the concept. They have slick decks and, you know, they'll get funded forever or at least for a very long time. And yeah, I, th- I think you're definitely right. And you're definitely, I wish more people talked about that. I really wish that when I went and saw VCs on panels, that that was a concept that was said more. And it's not at all. Another area that I've been thinking about lately is how many dollars are being deployed into some of these companies, right? And how that happens. And it made me think about how founders are often treated as a vehicle to drive returns for for investors. Like rather than let's go out and change the world is I have dollars I need to return to LPs. I have a large fund. I am going to give you an outsized advantage by giving you a war chest. And I'm using your company as nothing more than an asset, including the founders. And I'm going to pump as much money as I can to drive returns because I understand the gap in the market. I think you're smart and I think you're capable of doing it. And so that is how I'm going to allocate my capital to drive those returns. It's not as merit-based as one would hope. And that's something I feel that I've realized the more that I've been embedded within venture is sometimes these opportunities are just treated as vehicles to drive returns. Which is why founders also end up with so little, even, even in a unicorn exit, right? It's like, you can have founders that exit at a billion dollars plus and they're making, you know, not, not what most would think. For sure. So let's, let's, we, we talked about existing startups, unicorn, 
valuations, all of that. If we brought it all back, if you're a founder in 2022 today, what's the advice you give them? What do you tell them? What do you tell them when they pitch? Well, how do you tell them in terms of running their business? And you know, it, it's, it's, it's funny. I have a feeling, you know, I have a feeling that this answer probably hasn't changed for you, but it may have changed for the rest of the world. But I'm curious, like, I actually, I have no idea. I'd love to see just what you say here as far as what advice do you give somebody who is theoretically raising in a downturn? I think those that are solving real problems and creating real economic value and doing so at reasonable valuations are still able to raise. We've had a number of portfolio companies that have raised at increased valuations, even though they raised in 2021 at the height of tech exuberance. And I don't think they would have been able to do that unless they were A, driving real results with real traction and also solving a real problem. Is it at one of these ostentatious valuations that we've seen a year or two ago? No. But at the end of the day, if you're creating something that is solving a real problem and has real market pull, that is the recipe to success and no amount of money. I actually, I shouldn't say that. I, I was going to say no amount of money fake that, but I, I do believe there's actually the Silicon Valley recipe is oftentimes just keep throwing money at it until we find something that sticks, but it's a much riskier approach. Our approach is find a real problem with a team that's capable of solving it, go solve it. And you're going to be able to raise even in a downturn. And we've seen that. What what if you did it wrong? So what what if you may, maybe you raised in 2021 and maybe you 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 got caught up in the exuberance, all of that? Are there corrective steps you can take if you're a startup and you're in kind of an awkward position? The reason I'm at a loss for words right now is because there's so many variable situations sure. that I could think of. I always think there's a path, right? It it's very dependent on which stage you are, the mistakes that you've made, how much money you've burned, where you're at traction wise, what the outlook is, right? Like I, I do believe that there's a path forward many times. Is it there a path forward for a company that's raised over a hundred million dollars that is doing six hundred K of revenue? I don't know. <laughs> right? Not to pick on fast there, but that's a different situation altogether versus someone that maybe is overspent but is actually still growing at a pretty healthy rate it can make some make some headcount reductions to get costs in order to eventually see a path to reasonable growth with more favorable economics at the same time and do you think that you know do you think that the the trajectory of venture changes because of 2022 here do you think that we're going to see something else happen fewer syndicates more syndicates you know different different valuation methods for startups any of that that's a really good question i i think about that and the outlook for venture in my opinion is i still i'm still very bullish on it i think what will happen is a number of funds will not be able to make it through because of yep. the way they've allocated i believe many of the funds still will Right. And venture as an asset class is still going to be very, very strong in the future because if you're bullish on technology, which I'm very much am, I believe we're in the early innings of tech still. And we've talked about how tech is yet to find its way into many of these legacy antiquated spaces. And it's true. Like to give an example, I was looking at a pharmaceutical procurement solution for healthcare systems 
which is still done on spreadsheets. They're ordering an entire healthcare system might order $400 million worth of pharmaceutical drugs through Excel spreadsheets. And five of their hospitals might order the same drug from five different vendors. It is absolutely insane, some of the problems that exist out there today. And so when I think about the proliferation of technology, I do believe we're still early. And because we're still early, that means that there's still very lucrative opportunities out there. And because of that, that trickles all the way back down to venture capital and investors funding those opportunities because there's money to be made. So I think the outlook for venture is still very strong. Valuations, similar to public markets, are going to go up. They're going to go down, but generally they're going to go up over time. And some funds won't be able to make it through. We're seeing that already. Um, those that have stayed disciplined, I, I think will have a good shot. And it just depends on where they're at in their fund cycles in terms of you know, what, what their next fund looks like compared to their last one and how well they did in staying disciplined. Arun, I have, I have some questions for you too. I don't know if it's appropriate to where we can put them in, but I, I don't know if the audience has heard what your experience was like as a founder raising, when did you, when did you raise for Model Prime? It was in 2021, 2021, right? September, October. Yeah. 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 So the interesting thing for me as an investor is my baseline is new stack, right? Yeah. Like I, I know our diligence process. I'm a, obviously aware of the way that we think about things and you only read in here anecdotally from the way other firms operate and uh, from some of our own founders as well. But I'm curious for yourself, I'd, what was your process like raising raising that round during the height of tech exuberance and you know the crazy valuations and everything that goes into it. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's it's funny. I don't I don't think anyone's ever actually asked me this. I think that a lot of my mental energy went towards this isn't going to last. So, like, I had to really think about first of all, like, what's our value proposition? Is it really strong enough? Is it going to survive a downturn? And the thing that Janine and I would frequently talk about was, you know. Look, if this is if if this doesn't if this if this business isn't going to work in a downturn, it's not going to work in an up. You know, there's there's no like decision that we make that we make because the because things are booming. So that comes down to our valuation, how we're raising, how much we're raising, all of those things. You know, we wanted to make sure that we were we were not being taken by like the tech exuberance. And I think some of it was, you know, we we were both like students of of kind of history and markets and stuff like that and really really thought about 2000 very very it was very forward in our minds and so we said okay look what you know what can we do that's favorable because the markets are favorable but not crazy and we tried to thread that needle and in terms of diligence and things like that we would actually throw funds out if we didn't think their diligence was strong enough because our our thinking was if they're just tossing loose cash around, loose cash is actually very dangerous as a founder. And this is, I mean, Nate, you're a founder yourself and you can back me up or disagree with me here. But the problem with easy cash is that the minute, the minute something turns, the minute one of the numbers inverts, when something happens, that's the first cash to go. It's the first cash mm -hmm. that walks away, right? And you really want people that do really good diligence, are really committed to your business, and if you don't have that, I think, you know, I'm not saying it won't work out, but I do think the path is potentially fraught. And, you know, I think a lot of our thoughts at Model Prime were, how do we not get taken 
how do we not get swayed by this? How do we do things that are good for like the long haul? And let's take a little bit of, you know, edge just because maybe things are a little bit favorable for a founder right now, but nothing crazy. And you, you know, you know, terms and you know, all that and we've, we've talked and you, seemingly you'd probably line up with that. Yeah. What, what were, what were the reactions from the investors you turned away? Any juicy stories there? <laughs> sure. That doesn't, that doesn't happen very often. I'm sure from many of the investors that you were speaking with. So I'd be curious if you have any juicy morsels for us. You know, I, I think that choose your words wisely. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> your words wisely. I mean, th there's nothing. It's trying to out you. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, I think we're in the same. We're on the same side here. Yeah, yeah. Nate, Nate just wants to. Nate just wants the. You know, he wants. You don't to know, need to name names. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no. I'm excited. Make up names though. Make yeah. up names. That'll. <laughs> yeah, there was. You know, there was. There, there, there were funds that wanted to know why. There were funds that there was. There was one fund that you know they they came back to us with a market size that was enormous and, and i said look the market's just not that big i, I don't understand it, it's it's not a it's not a trillion it's not a trillion dollar market i can assure you of that but they were super exuberant and we didn't think it was the right fit they really believe you, you really think something's a trillion dollar market you're gonna you're gonna be really excited and want that company and i think that you know us trying to temper those expectations a little bit may have caught them off guard they they certainly really wanted wanted the deal i would say that you know we definitely had you know we've had some we had some funds that just didn't treat us well like so the, the other side of that and like some some funds that brought us the wrong way in a meeting or something like that and the way we always thought about it was if if there are you know this is the best behavior you're ever going to see from a vc is like when when they're sort of in the early stages and so if they're if they're a pain to work with now they're going to be a pain to work with later so we just either just not respond or, you know, sometimes I would respond much later. And usually they, they, they were chasing another shiny object at that point and uh, would leave me alone. <laughs> and then it was pretty easy to tell. I'm mean, talking about not, not, not treating us well. Some, sometimes like people just wouldn't listen when we were telling them something. They, they already had a thought in their head and you try to tell them, hey, this is, this is how we think this works. This is how, and then with no expertise would tell us it works a different way. That's not a great feeling either. I will also say it, this. There were a lot of great funds out there that we talked to. It like deal didn't work it for whatever reason, right? You know, there was one fund that we dealt with very early on in our process. They said no to us, but they got back to us on a long weekend, you know, within three days, you know, explained why, didn't waste our time, didn't say any of the, we're cheering from the sidelines nonsense or any of that other stuff that VCs say, you know, I hope you prove me wrong, all that garbage, right? I hope you write a book. I hope you write a book that has VC quotes in it, Arun, I, it, please. I, I, I kind of want, there's gotta be a product in there, Jake, though, like VC quote of the day. That's uh, what I'm saying. Don't worry. Yeah. Don't worry. We're cheering from the side. Can you imagine waking up to that quote? Don't worry, but we're cheering from the sidelines. It's right. not you. It's did me. You guys, yeah, yeah. Did you guys see the, the Spotify meme the other day? The playlist of the VC pass email? No. That's no, pretty good. I didn't. Oh, I'll have to send that to you guys. Yeah, yeah. You'll get a kick out of it. Can uh, you describe it for the audience? Let me let me read it and pull dun, dun. it up. I feel like we gotta we, we gotta get better at that. You know, we're audio only, so we we don't have we don't have a solid way to share other than show notes, of course. Oh, okay. So, man, I wish I could, I wish I could show this. My girlfriend sent it to me. It, it's so they have the title of the song in one column and then the artist so just a classic spot spotify playlist it says hey brother thanks for coming 
Great to know you. We are truly impressed by focus achievement. However, business looks too early for us. I hope you oh. think of us next round and <laughs> oh. be in touch. P.S. Sorry, no feedback signature. So oh, for, no. for you guys, that's what it looks like. Just a classic playlist, but it, it's yeah. very funny. Oh, that's oh. you know, and, there you go. Basis for product. <laughs> There we go. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna look into that and see, see if we can, if we can get a Kickstarter started for, for. for I'm distracting, I'm distracting you. Go, yeah. go, go. Yeah, you know, and then the other thing too is, I don't know. You'd probably agree with this. I'd say we're a qualified founding team. Uh, we have a, a strong thesis. We have a problem that we think drives economic value, and we can measure that value directly, and all of those things. And we had to, you know, really, really just just think about fundamentals a lot. And if if so, if we thought of a fund was pulling us away from fundamentals or wasn't treating us properly, those two categories, we just exited those conversations. And I think that was it. I don't think there was any more magic to that than that. You know, and I, that's probably my advice to founders is. There, there is history and, and history, history does matter. You'll know if you're getting a deal that's too good. You know, if you're getting a lot of easy money, you'll know those things and you should think about that. And you should also not necessarily tolerate a fund treating you badly either. I don't think that anyone should be. And, you know, I think that it's important, you know, as a founder and I think as a VC, I think both sides of that equation, I think you've probably seen it, Nate. I think for a while it was, it was in vogue to treat VCs badly if you were a founder. It still might be. We we've never we've never done that. No, it's Nate choosing his answer correctly. Yeah. No, it, it, it's funny because <laughs> being being a founder, I always I always had a certain feeling about VCs, and now being a VC, I still have those feelings. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in the, in the early parts of, the, of this episode, you mentioned going to the other side, and and I, I noticed you didn't say like dark or light side, and so I'm I'm actually curious as to given you've had a founder background, like what is your thought there? I like my 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 experience as a founder with VCs was pretty limited. We ended up because of the market that we operated in, which was sports, we were able to raise from I'll just say angels that had deep pockets is the best way to put it. But we did interact with some VCs, and they they weren't great interactions. And oftentimes, we left with a very sour taste in our mouth. Now being an investor, a lot of the stereotypes and the stigmas are true. I I see it frequently. You know, you network with other investors and you just don't see eye to eye. There's a lot of, I don't know, there's a lot of egos going around for sure. And that I think is detrimental to doing the job well at the other at the end of the day. So something that Arun said that hit me is they he and Janine were describing something that they feel like they know quite well and the investor disagreed and said it was a different way and that circles back to something I was saying in the beginning of the episode of forming a thesis on the space more broadly at the early stage but at the end of the day whatever I come to conclude over a month or a two month period building a thesis at this stage of of a company's life cycle i'm going to trust a rune more than <laughs> more than myself if i can validate what he's saying is true through my diligence process so anyway there's a lot of egos i think that get in the way of making investments at times and being an investor you you find a niche of other investors that believe in the same things and have a similar investment philosophy 
but you also realize why there are so many stereotypes out there about investors that are true. There's also some flexibility needed on the founder side too, because you know no plan survives contact with the enemy, and you may have to retread. And you know, the, to that same investor that 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 tried to, you know, tell me tell me it was a certain way. You know, the only thing I can really tell them is we don't think so. But you know, once we get into this, we may not know, right? You know, we may have to. That that you could be right, right? And, and I think that there's there's some of that needed on, on both sides. The idea that, you know, the VC does not have it all figured out. And certainly the founder does not have it all figured out. And yeah, uh, I just wish people were more honest about that. Obviously lacking context in terms of what the disagreement was around, but generally the way we think about any investment opportunity is in three parts, the who, the what, and the how. And the who is the founding team, the what is what they're executing against, and the how is the strategy around the execution. The execution component is the most malleable versus the what and the how. Like Those are the foundational elements, but if there's any disagreements around the execution piece, that is going to drastically change. If, if you're betting on the right team, they're going to be able to iterate on that strategy and figure it out. One of the challenges though is what elements do you get comfortable with around the how piece that might be missing, whether it's the go-to-market just really isn't figured out or the business model might have some holes in it, right? And the founders might even be aware of it. But anyway, I, I do believe if you find someone like yourself, they tend to find a, a way around the execution piece. Yeah, you know, and the, the other thing I will also say, and, and this will be the last thought I have at least before we move on to hot takes, is if you're a founder, you know when the investors are the right investors. You'll get the feeling. And for us, we we were really lucky. We were patient. We didn't take easy money necessarily. And I think we ended up with with the set of investors that we're, we're really happy with. And actually, you know, especially when this market moved moved other ways, we we felt really, really blessed in some ways that, that things worked out the way they did. And, that, and that's the other thing I will tell founders raising is, is be as patient as you can. You know, if somebody says yes and really wants to invest in your business and you want to hold off, like you can always restart that conversation generally, you know, but you don't have to um, rush and take the first money that's there. And the other thing, too, is if you're a qualified founder, you're actually in a position of strength. And, and that's something that I think people easily forget. I was talking to a founder actually yesterday who has the same problem. They're, they're incredibly qualified, probably a world expert at what they do. And they, they, they don't seem to understand. And I, I had to tell this person, you're in a position of power. There, there's more money out there than there are qualified founders. So really what you should be, you know, you should, you should be thinking, who do I want to fund my business? What kind of investor do I want? And you may not get the exact list of names, right? But the traits that you want should, should line up. And, and, I, and, and I think that's probably the advice I'd give most people today. It's like Jake's point, right? Jake mentioned that there is an abundance of capital, but the, the supply of startups that are highly desired from investors is, is small. When you're in that position where you know you have something and you're the right person to do it. I, I think that's the right move. You know, be patient. Find an investor that actually wants to go on that journey with you. Can provide value, whatever that it is that the founder needs. I think every founder's needs are something different, but those founders are in a position of of leverage. Yeah, and I guess maybe uh, I said I had one more piece, but I guess the other thing I'll just tell both founders and VCs is just be 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 
be kind to each other. You know, try try to be. You know, there, there's a human being on the other side, right? And I think that 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 frequently gets lost. And I know there's always that Ehrlich, that Silicon Valley bit where you know he's treating the VCs like trash, and then they're they're like they're getting like so excited, right? it's really funny, but I feel like that became like a thing people actually started doing. And I can't tell if, if, if the show was mocking, like something that already happened or whatever we we've, you know, at least, at least I can say this. I don't really think that that's something I would want to do. And so like, you know, I would also ask founders to reconsider that behavior too, on the behalf of, of investors. Right. I don't think it's great if somebody's, you know, from your side of the table, somebody's treating you really badly, it's not great. Especially when genuinely, in some cases, you're probably trying to help them. So yeah. That's- oh, that, it, it's truly the best part of the job. Like I, the investing part is, is one part, right? That That's not the fun, the fun stuff. The fun stuff is being able to be on the journey and be with them through the ups and the downs. I, we were talking about this internally as a team the other day, I believe Nick and I were, and I was saying the best days I've had over the past year two years are the best days for someone in the portfolio right one of the founders we backed something great happened and that made me feel great as well right like their wins are my wins and conversely Mm -hmm. the worst days i've had over the past year or two are the worst days for someone in the portfolio partnership yeah it's a partnership exactly so that that's what i was going to say to capstone it's a it's a true partnership and anytime you're getting into an agreement that is adversarial you're you're losing the partnership and therefore you're losing the best part of the job in fact i every deal we do if we we don't want to do deals that are that founders feel like they're unfair because if you start off the relationship that way you miss the you know the beauty of the partnership and i don't know it's something that we think consciously about quite a bit yeah. And, uh, you know, I couldn't have said that better myself. And I think that that's like a, I think it's a really, really nice way of putting it, which is you, you might get the terms you want, but you also want kind of the, the partnership you want out of all of it. And uh, I hope more founders think about that and, and more VCs too. Yeah. All right. Arun, you're going to move us on? <laughs> yeah. So we have, we have a tradition here on Techonomics, Nate, and it's called the hot take, but because Jake became a father last year, we have rebranded it to Papa Jake's hot take. So Papa Jake, will you give Nate, <laughs> oh, there's, there's a lot of, a lot of good sounds in this. Will you give Nate his hot take? Absolutely. All right. We talked a lot about public versus private markets, and there's also a public versus private battle happening right now over Twitter in terms of Elon Musk trying to purchase and then backing out of said deal and then getting subpoenaed pretty heavily right now. And, you know, we talked a lot about tech exuberance and where the market currently stands. And, you know, perhaps this is a pinnacle of that, but what is your response and, and thought on the, the current Twitter Elon situation? Ooh, that is a, a hot take, isn't it? All right. The, I'm biased here because I am a big Elon Musk fan. I realize many out there might not be, but I think it's challenging to find someone who's done so much and someone that thinks as large as he does. So at that level, sometimes I think he crosses the line at times as it pertains to SEC regulations, what have you. But I don't know. When it came to him buying Twitter, I didn't have a problem with it. Where he's at with the deal right now, I I have... 
I'd be lying if I said I kept too much up to date with it. The way I've been thinking about it is I was following it and the back and forth. I'm like, let's just see where the dust settles and then I'll evaluate it at that time. I didn't have a problem with him buying Twitter. And again, I might be biased there because I'm an Elon Musk fan, but I, I don't have an overly hot take for you on that one. Fair enough. I guess we'll have to just see how it all shakes out. And to be honest, the topic itself is hot enough. I guess what's we'll... your feeling? <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping to close out there, but I guess yeah. it's back on me. You know, I have no problem with him purchasing Twitter. Like I think I do agree. He, he dreams big and you know, I don't know him personally. I, I don't know many people that do. And you know, I, I, I just, I, I think it's, it's crazy to just be like, you know what, I'm going to buy Twitter uh, and I'm going to figure out how to do it. And then the problem that I have, though, is the fallout of what happened after he decided to buy Twitter. And so this like back and forth and realizing, mm, OK, well, the price of Twitter just dropped. I already had agreed to a certain price and there's some, you know, honor system there. And I understand that that's a lot of money to play around with. But like generally, you know, you only get by so many times on, on making deals and then backing out of them. You know, I would have liked to see a little bit more, I don't know, rigor around around that. I do agree his, with that. Yeah. In terms I of do agree stature. with that. A lot of people were up in arms around him buying Twitter to begin with. I, yeah. I feel like that was a more contentious, contentious piece. And since the deal has fallen through, like I said, I haven't dug too much into it, but I'm never a fan of a deal, no matter how big or small it is being made and then reneging on it. Yeah. And like I said, I don't have all the context and, you know, I'm just reading it and in the news like everyone else, but it's always fun to, to just consider the possibilities of what could happen and, and as a result, what you would do differently. So, yeah. Arun, where do, where do you fall on it? I don't know. Can I, can I just, can I, can I just opt out? Can I, can I just protect just my, like Elon. Yeah, just I, like Elon. I want to protect my answer. Like I protect my cheats. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, no, look, it is what it is. I had no problem with him buying it. I don't care. How do you run, you know, how do you run SpaceX, Tesla, Twitter, foreign company, Neuralink, all of that at the same time? I don't know, but I'm also not Elon Musk. It's not my problem. I don't know. It, it just seems like it's a circus. And I feel like sometimes he just creates a circus for no reason. And this just seems like mm -hmm. one of those. Cases. I would agree. And that that's all yeah. it is. That's all it is. In my I very much felt that way about the, the crypto stocks, right? Pumping Dogecoin and he knows the power that he has on that front, right? And I, I think that sometimes he does take advantage of it for sure. The pumping of Dogecoin, in my opinion, was inexcusable. The SEC slapped his wrist, and so he decided to start manipulating yeah. unregulated securities just as the thumb his nose. And the, the real truth is people got hurt when when he did that and it's not it's not great that that of all things like you know i can i don't care about him doing uh, buying twitter i don't really care about you know a lot of things he does but that that was one that you know he shouldn't have done in my opinion yeah it, it feels like over the past 12 to 18 months is when he's become a lot more polarizing including for myself by the way where always held him in a certain regard and I, I, I still think he's one of the best innovators we've seen. I and, agree. But again, crossing the lines in the way that he has is, it's disappointing. But I don't know. Like you said, he, whatever he does, he gets a slap on the wrist, right? My hope is that this is just a phase that he's going through and that he'll, he'll grow up at the end of all of this. But who knows? And it's also, there's also like this thing of like, how much do I choose as an individual yeah. as a technologist? Yeah, I care. Yeah. You know, especially where, you know, all my, the amount of time I spent in self-driving, his impact on self-driving, all of that, 
you know, I, and I definitely have thoughts on that that I don't want to get into here, but you know, there's, there's a lot there, you know, and it's, it's, it is polarizing. I think that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Cool. Right. Hey, thanks for the, the thoughts on, on that, Nate. I, I really appreciate it. Glad you were able to, to come join us. Thanks for the time and hope to have you on soon. And before we go, if yeah. there's a founder out there trying to pitch Ooh. and they want Ooh. your attention, how do they get your attention, Nate? <laughs> that is very easy. Just send me an email. I read every <laughs> email that I get. <laughs> we'll include it in the show notes, actually. Nate at newstack.vc. Nate at newstack.vc. All right, cool. All right. Thank All right. you. Thanks, guys. Nice. Bye. Hey, everyone. Arun and I are extremely grateful to have you as a Techonomics listener. As a reminder, the views expressed in the content of this podcast or anything linked in the newsletter, website, posts, or posted in social media or other platforms are that of our own and are not the views of any person company, entity, or even any related affiliates. The content is not directed to any investors or even potential investors. It does not constitute an offer to sell or is a solicitation of any offer to buy any securities. It may not be used or relied upon in evaluating the merits of any investment. Thank you.